We're looking this morning at the subject, the joy of a thankful heart from Colossians chapter 3 and other texts as well. You'll note in your bulletin outline the first point there is that thanksgiving breeds peace. And we could say it this way, those at peace are thankful people. Our text has it in Colossians 3 and verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts since as members of one body you were called to peace and be thankful and be thankful. Observe, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Really? Do we do that? Does His peace rule in our hearts? We are at peace with God concerning the sin which made us His enemy because in Christ the hostility caused by our sin has been dealt with, it's been paid for, it's been eradicated in the blood of our substitute, Jesus our Savior. We can say with Paul, there is therefore now, now, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus because... Through Christ, the law of the Spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. Romans 8, the first two verses. We're at peace with God through the work of Jesus Christ because our faith is in Him, not in our alleged good works. Paul encouraged this. He says, Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4, verses 5 through 7. So he's saying, if you're thankful to what God has done for you and what He is in terms of being the Savior and sustainer of your life, then the peace of God will come in. If you can pray with thanksgiving, the peace of God will come in. And it's a peace which transcends all understanding. You won't exactly be able to put your finger on everything, but it will calm your hearts. I would say it this way. A thankful heart is a peaceful heart. thankful heart is a peaceful heart. It's content. It is satisfied. It is at rest and not agitated by the circumstances of life. Now, it's not that we are oblivious to the turmoil of life, but rather that when adverse things intrude into our world, we are still at peace because of our confidence in God. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 18, Paul words it this way, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. We read that and we say, whoa, wait wait a minute. How can God ask us to do such a very difficult thing? Give thanks in all circumstances? My cancer diagnosis? My pink slip notice at work that I'm being laid off? My rebellious son, my rebellious daughter who is on breakneck speed to destruction through drugs and lawlessness and crime. Really? I mean, am I supposed to be thankful for these circumstances? The answer is yes. And here's why. Circumstances do not come our way by the fickle finger of fate. They come our way by the hand of an almighty God who is working His will for His glory and our eventual, that's a key word, our eventual good. It is providence, not lady luck, that rules over your life and mine. It rules over the lives of unbelievers too, but they do not acknowledge God in such things, but we do. And that's the difference. Job knew this when all of his children were killed in a day when the house in which they were dining collapsed on them and killed them. 
David knew this when his own son, his own son, Absalom, led a successful revolt against his kingdom and he was forced to flee Jerusalem. Elijah knew this when Jezebel sent out her assassins to hunt him down and to try to kill him. And he was a man on the run. The widow of Nain knew this when her only son died and she was left to mourn. Paul knew this when he prayed for deliverance of the thorn in his flesh tormenting him and God refused. God refused to heal him. The people of the world will not be thankful for any of these kinds of adverse events because they have no appreciation for and no love of God. They may and do often blame God for injustice in these things, but they will not thank Him for these things. They will not because they cannot. The Bible teaches that peace is a fruit of the Holy Spirit being in a person's life. Galatians 5, verse 22. But of the unbelieving, Isaiah writes, There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. Isaiah 48, verse 22. That's why there's no thankfulness, because they're linked together, as we've seen already in our text here in Colossians. Peace with the Lord brings forth thankfulness. And if we're thankful, we have a peaceful heart. Secondly, ingratitude is the portion of a greedy and discontented heart. Much of the discontent that we see in Europe these days, and especially in such countries as Italy and Spain and Greece, wherein people are rioting in the streets and vandalizing property and attacking government buildings and government officials is due to the entitlement mentality their socialistic governments have fostered. Their countries are in trouble. Greece is now on its second financial bailout. But it's not out of the woods yet. It is still on the very verge of complete bankruptcy. Do their citizens care? Are they willing to pull together for the good of all, not on your life. That's why they're rioting in the streets. They're rioting to keep the government checks coming, even though the government is on the verge of bankruptcy. And they're willing to see the country fail, if need be. They're not really thinking too far down the pike. If the government fails, if the government really goes into bankruptcy, You won't have to worry about not getting 100% of your check. You won't be getting 0% of your check. Oh, and before we become too smug and condescending, America is not far behind. Our national debt right now is over $16 trillion, that's a T, trillion dollars, with a trillion, that's a T, being added every year. We are in trouble. People want their entitlements. Worse, we expect the government to do more for us, as was evident in the results of the election. The administration promised the moon, and the voters said, Yay, man, and I'm first in line for my government handout. Let me tighten the noose a bit more by saying that the church is not immune from greed and discontentment. When the economy is tight, we become tight. Our church has had difficulty meeting budget for many weeks. We see up here an offering on last week that exceeds the weekly budget, but if you look back three, four weeks, you'll see we have not. We have much for which to be thankful, but discontentment will rob us of peace and thankfulness if we let them. It's important that we remain faithful in our stewardship, else God may just see to it that we have less than now. 
I've been in contact with a church in downtown New York City which is heavily involved in helping the victims of the of Hurricane Sandy. This went out on the prayer chain. This is why we took our special offering today. Their church members, and you can go on their site, their church members are climbing in the dark in stairwells up 25 floors in apartment houses and so forth. I say in the dark because there's no electricity there, so there's no hall lights, there's no lights in the stairwells. The batteries of the uh, emergency lighting have long since uh, run out. But as they climb up in the dark with flashlights and such, they're reaching seniors and others who are holed up in their dark apartments with no food, no heat, and no lights, and it's been weeks like that. And one 75-year-old man they found was on dialysis and had no way to get down for his treatments because the elevators don't work, and he's up there. So does a 75-year-old man walk 25 floors who's on the verge of diabetic shock? Well, anyway, they were able to help get policemen and first responders to go up there and cart him down. These church people are doing the work of Christians and we can help if we will and we are. So praise the Lord for that. The writer of Hebrews says, keep your lives free, free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. And so we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Hebrews 13, verse 5 and 6. Be content with what you have and watch out for the love of money. Paul wrote something very similar to Timothy, but he was even more assertive. Listen to how he words this. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. The writer of Hebrews says, let's be content. And Paul says, we will be content if we have these two items, food and clothing. And then he goes on. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. That's found in 1 Timothy 6, verse 8 through 10. We are not the first people to be concerned about the future. And we will not be the last. For God has proven Himself faithful to all who trust in Him. Moses reminded the people of Israel, The Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He has watched over you in your journey through this vast desert. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you and you have not lacked anything. Deuteronomy 2, verse 7. Oh, do tell more, Moses, okay? He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out and your feet did not swell during these 40 years. Deuteronomy 8, verse 3 and 4. Tell us more, Moses, okay? For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land which streams with streams and pools of water, with springs flowing in the valleys and the hills, a land with wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil and honey, a land where... Bread will not be scarce and you will lack nothing. A land where the rocks are iron and you can dig copper out of the hills. And when you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land that He has given you. Deuteronomy 8, verses 7 through 10. 
Oh, more. Tell us more, Moses. Okay. The Lord will keep you free from every disease. He will not inflict you, inflict on you the horrible diseases that you knew in Egypt, but He will inflict them on all who hate you. Deuteronomy 7, verse 15. Do you know that none of the pagan nations knew anything about personal hygiene and germs, but God's law contained all kinds of healthful regulations. Let me read a couple of them for you. A sore with a white hair in the center of it indicates an infectious disease, and so you are to isolate that person outside the camp. No pagan nation knew anything about that. Let me read on. When a man has lost his hair and is bald, where's George? <laughs> when a man has lost his hair and is bald, he is clean. If he has lost his hair from the front of his scalp and has a bald forehead, he is clean. Okay, George, you're, you're, we're, we're, we're batting 100% here. But if he has a reddish white sore on his bald head or forehead, he is, has an infectious disease breaking out on his head or forehead. And again, isolation. Leviticus 13, verse 40 through 42. No nation had this kind of knowledge. But Israel did. Again, we read the priest is to examine the mildew. Somebody has mildew on their clothing? He says the priest is to examine the mildew and isolate the affected article for seven days. On the seventh day, he's to examine it. If the mildew has spread in the clothing or the woven or the knitted material or the leather, whatever its use, it is a destructive mildew. The article is unclean. He must burn up the clothing or the woven or knitted material of wool or linen or any leather article that has the contamination in it, because the mildew is destructive, the article must be burned. Leviticus 13, verse 50 through 52. When God said, you know, I took care of you in the desert and nothing bad happened to you. When He said, I didn't bring the diseases of the Egyptians upon you that you had even, that you had experienced down there. Here's how He did it. Through the law of His command. Again, he led you through the vast and dreadful desert, that thirsty and waterless land with its venomous snakes and scorpions. He brought you water out of the rock. Deuteronomy 8 verse 15. And then here we have the first outhouse in scripture. Didn't know if you knew this. Designated place outside the camp where you can go to relieve yourself. And as part of your equipment, have something to dig with. And when you relieve yourself, dig a hole and cover up your excrement. Deuteronomy 23, verse 12 and 13. No nation knew about personal hygiene in this regard. Do you know that some third world countries today still don't know about personal hygiene in this regard? And then... There are tons of Scripture advocating washing of the body, washing of your clothes, washing of the utensils that you use to cook, washing before you re-enter the camp after quarantine. On and on and on it goes. Throughout the book of Leviticus and Numbers, God's requirements that they might be a holy people, yes, but if they obeyed these very practical things, they'd also be a healthy people. God took care of them. And He took care of their future as well. So I say again, the Israelites never saw a germ under the glass of a microscope. They never had a doctor or a nurse teach them proper protocol of body hygiene. But God saw to it that they were kept healthy and strong as and if they obeyed His precepts. No other nation on the earth had these advantages. 
What is more, they like us were warned about greed and discontentment. You know there was a bunch of that going on in their wilderness journey too. Oh, they talked about this light bread, manna. They weren't thankful. You all remember the account of Achan and how he stole some of the booty from the victory of Israel over Jericho. And because it was the first triumph, God claimed the booty for himself, a tithe, as it were, from the first fruit of victory. Now, what you might not remember is that Achan's greed contaminated the whole camp. Listen to how God addresses this to Joshua. Israel has sinned, God says to Joshua. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them in their own possessions. And that is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have made made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Joshua 7, verse 11 and 12. Now, Achan did the deed, but Israel, they were doing the, paying the penalty. And what we see here is that Achan's greed implicated all the Israelites, and his sin brought judgment on all of Israel. God did not just single him out for punishment. The armies of Israel were defeated, and the men died at the assault of Ai, a little dinky town, not half as big as Jericho. Because God withdrew His strength and His grace. May we be warned and may we repent of those times when we, like Achan, have robbed God to pad our own bank account. This shows an unbelieving, an unbelieving, as well as an unthankful heart. God isn't going to take care of me. I've got to take care of myself. Filled her off God's money and put it in our own pocket. Now, what are some of the ways that we can express thanksgiving to God? Well, I listed music here. I listed because it's found in the scripture. The psalmist says, You turned my wailing into dancing, you removed my sackcloth cloth and clothed me with joy that my heart may sing to you and not be silent, O Lord my God. I will give you thanks forever. Psalm 30, verse 11 and 12. One of the ways that we can express thanks to God is in music. In the First Chronicles text this morning that we read, we read how David appointed certain men to lead in worship. We read that day David first committed to Asaph and his associates this psalm of thanks. To the Lord. And then we have the psalm. Give thanks to the Lord. Call on His name. Make known among the nations what He has done. Sing to Him. Sing praise to Him. Tell of His wonderful acts. Glory in His holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. First Chronicles 16, verses 7 through 10. Now we read a text like that and we say, Yeah, well... They were professional singers. They were professional musicians. Well, that was so. But their role as such was to lead the people at large in worship. Listen to what it says elsewhere in that text. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory that is due His name. Bring an offering and come before Him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. 1 Chronicles 16, verses 18 through 30. So you see, while they were appointed to lead and to set the example, their outreach was to all the constituents. In our own text, Colossians 3, look at verses 16 and following. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. And as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the 
name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Colossians 3, verse 16 and 17. You see, the Psalms were Israel's hymn book. That's where the, that's, that was their hymn book. In which their longings, their aspiration, their fears, their joys, it's all in the Psalms. You can read about it. Our hymn book consists of the same set to music. So God isn't looking for professionally trained soloists, musicians and such. Just thankful people singing from their hearts. Praise to God. One of the ways that we show our thanks to God, we can, we can sing to Him. And he is attentive to the songs that we sing. What about prayer? We've been studying on Wednesday night the importance of prayer. And again, we, we don't know how to pray, says Paul. And so he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. Romans 8, verse 27. That's the Holy Spirit there. And so he's saying the Spirit deals with our selfish and wrong prayers by making them right. He intercedes on our behalf according to the will of God. We studied just this last Wednesday that we can pray God's word back to Him. You're never on safer ground as to praying His will than if you can find a promise in the Scripture that God has made to you and you pray that back to Him. God, you said, da-da-da-da-da-da. You said this. I'm asking you to do that. What do we learn about prayer in the Bible? Well, one dominant trait about prayer is thanksgiving. An edict went out from the king of Daniel's day forbidding the people to pray to God. And we read now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. He's not in Jerusalem anymore, you know. He's a captive of this king. And we read three times a day, he got down on his knees and he prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Daniel 6, verse 10. No king has a right to command you to do something that violates your conscience. And certainly not anything that violates God's will for your life. And Daniel knew this. So edict or no, he was going to kneel three times a day, which was a Jewish custom, and he would give thanks to God as he had always done. Do you know the list for thanking God is almost without limit? Let me give you a few. Give thanks to the Lord for He is good. Psalm 118, verse 1. We ought to thank God that He's a good God, not an evil God. Verse 21, same chapter. I will give you thanks for you answered me. So we can thank God for answered prayers. Same verse. You have become my salvation. We can thank Him because He has saved us through the person of His Son, Jesus. Again, Psalm 136, verse 2. Give thanks to the God of God's his love endures forever. Never does God stop loving His people. No matter how adverse your circumstances are. Then we have Jesus who taught by example, telling His disciples to seat the, the, the crowd on the ground. And then we read, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, He gave thanks and broke the loaves. And then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. Matthew 14, verse 19. We can thank God for not only the food on our table, but for his daily provisions, which certainly includes our clothing and our warm house, running water, an automobile to get us to work, all of the various things that's part of our society. We can thank God in prayer. 
In prayer we are saying the words and expressing thankful thoughts. We're saying, thank you, Lord, for whatever. Thirdly, I've already touched on this, so I'll just mention it here again. We can thank the Lord in tithes and offerings. God's promise through Jeremiah to Israel is this. The sounds of joy and gladness, the voice of the bride and the bridegroom, the voices of those who bring thank offerings to the house of the Lord, saying, Give thanks to the Lord Almighty, for the Lord is good. His love endures forever. For I will restore the fortunes of the land as they were before, says the Lord. Jeremiah 33, verse 11. We thank the Lord. Every time you put um, money in the offering plate or in, in our box out here, even if it's not our not the special offering, but just the sustaining offering for our church expenses and so forth. Every time you do that, if you do it with a thankful and cheerful heart, you are expressing thanksgiving to God. Some will say, well, I don't have much. Well, that's, that's true. But everyone has something. The tithe, which all, all that means is a tenth. A tenth is all that God requires. So if you have a dollar, you have ten cents. If you have $5, you have 50 cents. That's the tithe. An offering you volunteer. A tithe required, an offering you volunteer. It's our way to thank God for His goodness and to promote the gospel of grace. Number four, we can thank God in praise of God. Surely God is my salvation. Isaiah writes, I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Isaiah 12, verse 2. Praising God for what, who and what He is. Again, enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him. Praise His name. Psalm 100, verse 4. When we come through the door, enter His gates. Come in here with a thankful heart. Come in with praise on your lips. Psalm 52, verse 9. I will praise you forever for what you have done. In your name, I will hope for your name is good. I will praise you in the presence of your saints. Point being that there are many, many ways in which we can express thanks to our great God, our great and gracious God. Uh, I, I use the word limitless. I think we'll t we will tire out before the Bible tires out of telling us how God's people of old were able to show their thanksgiving to God. And then lastly, what is the fruit of a thankful heart? What's the fruit of a thankful heart? Number one, thankful heart has a check, a bridle, if you please, on the sin of greed. What is greed? When we say of some business baron, so-and-so is a greedy man, what do we mean? I was watching a documentary on the History Channel about the very difficult time Henry Ford had to manufacture his automobile. It seems, and I didn't even know this, it seems that there was an automobile cartel in America that had a stranglehold on manufacturing automobiles. The cars that they produced were luxurious automobiles driven by chauffeurs. And so you, what they were saying is automobiles are for us who have money and can pay a chauffeur it isn't for everybody. But Ford wanted to produce an automobile for the average citizen. His design was simple, but more important, his plan for an assembly line dramatically dropped the cost. He had little startup capital, but he still had to fight the cartel in court with what money he had because the cartel intended to impose a royalty owed to them on every car that he made. 
Well, what would that do if you had to pay a royalty? It would jack the price of his little humble car right up there into the price range of the more luxurious cars, and he would be driven to bankruptcy. Well, it was at this very juncture in history when the judicial system was taking on Rockefeller for his monopoly in oil production, Standard Oil, J.P. Morgan for his stranglehold on Wall Street finances, Andrew Carnegie for his sole control of the steel industry. And while these men were recognized as the movers and shakers of America and of the world economy, the Congress passed anti-monopoly legislation, and here's what they cited as their reason for doing it. G-R-E-E-D. Greed. You guys have billions of dollars in the bank. And you're worried about this little Hoboken guy over here that wants to start up a company because he might be in competition with your huge corporations. Well, Ford's lawsuit was in the courts about this time, and so he won against the auto cartel. And the rest, as they say, is history. What is greed? The Greek word means the desire to have more along with the mental attitude to say or do whatever is necessary to get the more. Paul gives God's definition. Here's God's definition of what greed is. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature... And he begins to list sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Colossians 3, verse 5. Now you can see that Paul's list includes greed, with some pretty serious sins. And what he is saying here is that greed is the underlying sin of idolatry, the worship of things. They could be material things, as we just heard about these barons in manipulation in our country, or maybe things like um, power or the ability to manipulate the stock market. Or maybe it's prestige. Control freaks, you know, or greedy people. Thankful hearts, however, have a check upon the sin of what James says. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you. What desires? You want something, but you don't get it. Next phrase. You kill and you covet. There it is. Greed. But you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and you fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, You do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures, you adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? And anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. James 4, 1 through 4. That ought to be reason enough to put the knife to our throat with regard to greed. We're acting just like the world, like the people of the world, and we act that way. Greed is the way the world functions. There's no, de- no dependency on God. <laughs> it's every man for himself. Taking, stealing, manipulating the circumstances so you come out on top. All, it's all part of a greedy heart, which in itself is evidence of an unthankful heart. Jesus put it this way. 
Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Luke 12, verse 15. Well, I'll try to tell that to some people of the world. More, more, more is always going through their brain. But a thankful heart is a heart that has put the reins on, a check on this voracious appetite of greed. Secondly, a thankful heart is content. Not only does it have this drive for more, 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 give me more, 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 but whatever it has, it's content. Greed issues from not being content, but always wanting more, no matter what it takes to get it. Contentment issues from a heart that is appreciative of what is already in place as a result of God's providential oversight. Paul places emphasis on life's essentials. He says it this way, Godliness with contentment is great gain. You want to talk about more? I'll tell you something that's a gain. Godliness with contentment. For, here's a, here's a reason, we brought nothing <laughs> into this world and we can take nothing out of it. Boy, that's about as common sense as you can get. He's getting that, by the way, from Solomon who says the same thing in the book of Ecclesiastes. But, he goes on, if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and to any many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. First Timothy 6, verse 6 through 9. He's saying, we, we would list this as the necessities of life. Food and clothing. We would probably throw housing in there. And, and in our society, maybe some kind of way to get to work and that kind of thing. He also points out that contentment does not happen automatically, but it is a learned grace that comes from the Lord. And he uses himself as an example. Here's what he says. He says, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last, and he's writing to the uh, church at Philippi, at last, you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. And I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Now, what, he, it's, what he's doing here is he's thanking the church at Philippi. They, they did what we're doing for the churches, for the people in New York City. They took up a care package for Paul and they sent it to him. He's in prison. He says, I'm glad you're re renewing your uh, concern for me. Although I know you were conserving, but you just didn't, you didn't have the opportunity to help. But now you have had the opportunity to help. And I, I'm not saying this because I'm in need. I've learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. Now he goes on. I know what it is to be in need. And I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through Him who gives me strength. That's His secret. That's His secret. He's learned to trust Christ and to be strengthened by that. And then he concludes, yet it was good for you to share in my troubles. Philippians 4, 10 through 14. Yeah, here, here's the secret. I've, I've learned it. I've learned how to be content. Because in that, whether in plenty or in need, I've relied upon God and He's always come through. Does this mean that we should never replace our old car with a new one or we should never buy a new piece of clothing? or some recreational vehicle if we choose. No. 
but it will mean purchasing only what is necessary and not going overboard. Maybe a used car at half the price of a new. You ever think of that? Maybe clothing purchased at Goodwill or off the discount racks rather than at Macy's. Ever think of that? Say, do you do that? Yeah. Regularly, I once every two weeks, I walk through Goodwill. And I have now purchased my long sleeve wardrobe for 2013 by doing so. Why, why do we need to think this way, folks? Paul tells us. We have brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. That's why. That's why. And Jesus' haunting reminder should be rattling around in our minds as well. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Well, you wouldn't know that by looking at Americans. And you see, that reminder is undergirded with a promise. Here's the promise. Do not worry, saying, Oh, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. We're going to talk about needs. He knows what your needs are. Here's the answer. But you seek first His kingdom, His righteousness, And all these things will be given to you as well. Matthew 6, verse 31 through 33. So you don't have to become a wheeler dealer is what Jesus is saying. You get your priorities right and God will bless you with the things you need. So let me close by asking a few questions. What is it that you are living for? Is it money? A sporty car? A better wardrobe? A padded portfolio for retirement? These should all be secondary concerns. Jesus put it this way. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? Or... What can a man give in exchange for his soul? Matthew 16, verse 26. You don't have the spiritual aspects right. Go, you know, all this wanting to amass. Got your priorities all messed up. So you gain the world, Jesus says, and you go to hell. Oh, yeah, you really were a winner, weren't you? While on earth you drove a Rolls Royce and you lived in a mansion along the lake. And you died and went to hell. No, you lost. You lost big time. And you lost for all time. Eternity never ends. A thankful heart is a contented heart. Augur's prayer in Proverbs 30, verse 7 and following, is worthy of our contemplation. Listen to how he prays. And with this I close. Two things I ask of you, O Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. So I'm, I, my prayer request is for two things. Number one, keep falsehood and lies far from me. And number one, Make me a man of integrity. Number two, give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, (laughs) Who is the Lord? (laughs) I don't need the Lord. I got a million dollars in the bank. That's if you make me rich, Lord. I might do that. Or, I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. 
His prayer is this, Lord, don't allow me to fall on either one of the extremes. Just give me my daily bread. Jesus taught, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the word of God. It isn't your daily diet that sustains you, folks. It is God and his providence. David said, all the days you had for me were numbered and written in a book before any of them ever came to be. So your health diet and your health regimen will not extend your life, not one day. You ought to be thinking about eternity, not just the temporal here and now. Let's pray. Our Lord, thank you for your word today. Help us to be calm, thankful people. Our country has its problems. I just heard this week, manufacturer of uh, Wonder Bread, Twinkie Cakes and so on, going to shut down and 18,000 people in America from one company are losing their jobs. We're blessed. Others will be struggling. People in New York, New Jersey with the hurricane are struggling. Not all of them, but a good majority of them. The recovery is going to cost millions, yes, billions of dollars. Help us to be thankful, Lord. Really, help us to be thankful. And in our thanks to be able to help those that are in trouble. Mostly we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, that one who, the Scripture says, though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor. He became poor. He came down and dwelt among sinners. He took on the form of a servant. He was made in human likeness and he became obedient to God the Father in that human likeness. And the scripture says, obedient all the way to the cross. Because at the cross, he paid for the sins of all who will believe in him, all who will trust him for their salvation. We're not good enough for glory, but Jesus is. And he put his goodness on the line And he was made sin for us that in him we might be forgiven and cleansed. And so you now look upon your people as being righteous when we're not righteous, but you look upon us through the righteousness of Jesus and his righteousness counts for us. Anyone here that's outside of Jesus today, may you grant them that faith to trust Christ and his righteousness. And my, they'll start a new life that is unbelievably precious. For we who know you, let us be thankful, 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 thankful people. Deliver us from greed. Deliver us from being malcontents. Grant us gratitude. We are thankful, Lord. We just can't say it enough. But we say it this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.